Hello and welcome to the second season of All I Know. My name is Jen Winkleman and I'm your host for this time where we gather together as if we're around a little campfire and we're there to listen as everyday people tell us some of their stories. Here at this show, we believe that behind every single face, there are stories. And in every story, there are lessons for life that are waiting to be learned by the rest of us. So today, our guest and I will have a largely unscripted conversation, aside from the anchor questions that we use to get into our interviews. And then as our guest story unfolds, if you and I choose to do so, we can catch the truth and knowledge and wisdom that's being shared with us like little fireflies in a jar and then use that as light for our own paths in life. Thanks again for being with us. This is all I know. Should I go? Go. I don't. Yeah, go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go. (laughs) Welcome, everybody. Today, our guest is actually my mom. Hi, mom. (laughs) She's pumped. I did a specific ask for this episode because I think it was spring of 2015. She and I took a little pilgrimage and I asked her if she would come on the show to talk about that story. And she's feeling a little bit (laughs) not too sure if she wants to do that. So my mom's name is Mary. Hi, everyone. Uh, We're going to do the anchor questions, Mom, even though we know where we're going. Okay. So what do you think people need to know about you to get something out of today's conversation? I think the most important thing right now is that I am retired. And while that is not an extraordinary event, generally speaking, it is for me because... I love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) I I kind of love that you said that because I was going to say, well, it is an extraordinary event for you. Mm -hmm. It is. Because you're so happy. Yes. I'm so happy. Being retired. Being retired. And in spite of COVID's efforts to thwart my travel plans, I still traveled in my mind and traveled in books and travel on the internet. And I intend to travel on a plane as soon as I absolutely can. Anyway, I'm, I'm really enjoying having my work life behind me. And so that has put me in a very contented state. So on the spectrum between ordinary and extraordinary, where do you plot your life? Well, I plot my life as extraordinary. And that's been a journey because if you'd asked me even a couple of years ago. I think you did say ordinary when we talked about the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm coming to realize that everyone's life is extraordinary because we all have such interesting things to say. Everybody has a path they've been on and whether that path has just been around their own block, not in a work life, not raising a family. I mean, or... In a work life, raising exactly. a family. That's, yeah. No, that, but that's exactly my point. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's, everybody's got a story. And this podcast has helped me come to that 
recognition because they're all so interesting. And so many of the people, if you met them on the street, you'd just think they lead an ordinary life. But once people start start opening up. There's so much depth. It's, it's, it's amazing. There's so much untapped depth mm-hmm. that we just miss. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad the podcast has nudged you in that direction because, I mean, as you well know, that's kind of part of the point. Part of the point, right. How do you define success? Contentment. Contentment and acceptance for me. Being content with where you are, what you have, what you've been given, what you're able to do. And acceptance is key to that contentment. Because I do think that's the key to life, is accepting. And I'm not suggesting by any means that you shouldn't strive or have goals or dreams or desires, but there are plenty of instances in life where you simply need to accept the cards that have been dealt to you. Do you think there's a difference between contentment and happiness? I do. Because so many people, I don't know if it's necessarily true on the show, but in general, I feel like a lot of people talk about happiness being success. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what is your take on the difference between contentment and happiness? I think you can find happiness in contentment, but for me, happiness is a level above. (laughs) (laughs) A level above contentment. Yes, it is. It is because there's some joy some exhilaration, some magic, some (laughs) that comes with happiness for me. I mean, in moments when I am happy, those moments are above and beyond moments when I'm content. I can be content reading a book. I can be happy reading a book if there's something about the book that thrills me. But for me, there's a difference. There's There's just another level of intrigue or drama or energy or to happiness to happiness can you be content and sad yes you can and that's part of the acceptance piece of it you know I, I and I think there are aspects of my life where I have found contentment in league with sadness and again comes from an acceptance we know where we're going today, so you can't list this as one of your top three events. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because we're just going to that particular place. But out of curiosity anyway, mm-hmm. what would you say are three events or circumstances, experiences that have most defined who you are? For me, probably the most significant as I reflect on my life would be there's a general theme in my life. It's a theme of the missing man. I grew up in a female household. I raised females. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I have very good female friends. I grew up and attended Catholic school in my elementary years, and boys and girls were separated. I mean, until ninth grade, I wasn't in a classroom with a boy. There wasn't a lot of male influence. Not a lot of male influence in my life. I think that's highly significant. So that would be one. The second would be that I have an absolute love of travel. I should have been born a gypsy. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think about I think about a life like that, and I'm hugely intrigued by people who are wanderers and adventurers and explorers. And so if I pick up a book and it addresses some aspect of life that has to do with one of those things, I'm in love with the book. I love wilderness, reading about wilderness adventures and reading about time travel and reading about historic periods. Anything that will take me Away. <laughs> out of out of the place that I'm in, uh, and probably, I guess the third thing, and this really speaks to my life and where I'm at right now, is how interested I'd be in going back and doing it all over again. And how far back? All the way back. All the way back. All the way back. But the it's a Benjamin Button kind of thing now because I want to take back with me all the education and experience that I have gathered with these lines in my face. (laughs) And I'd love to carry that knot. Wouldn't we all have that perspective, that vision into the future, and knowing which way your life was going to go, go back and try again? So you would try something differently? I think I would make some different choices. What would you choose different? And how life would turn out. You wouldn't have kids. (laughs) (laughs) No, I wouldn't trade that for a heartbeat. I wouldn't trade that for a heartbeat. But I would have waited till I was older to get married because Mm -hmm. I think that would have been You were 20. 20. I was thinking you were like 22. It was 20. 20. 20 is young. 20 is very young. I would have liked to have had a more mature perspective on what was required to be a good wife and a good mother. And I would like to have made a different investment in those experiences and just just to see. What happens Mm -hmm. if you do that Mm -hmm. differently or with different intention or something? Right. I would have traveled young and tried to see a little bit of the world and have that kind of experience under my belt before I settled down. You know, nothing extraordinary here. Just, you know, it's just as I get older and look back on life and recognize that I probably don't have another 68 years ahead of me. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not 68. Mm -hmm. I don't think we want that for (laughs) anybody. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So. Uh, Do you think that the pilgrimage or the trip we're going to talk about today fits into one of those top three things? Oh, very much so. I kind of do too, but I know our listeners wouldn't make that leap. Well, it absolutely fits into the category of the missing man. It's huge there. And it also fits into my love of travel. And adventure. Yeah. Experiencing and exploring something outside the norm. Just to set the stage for you guys a little bit. To give some context around this idea of the missing man, my granddad, my mom's dad, passed away when you were just over a year old. In 1954. May of 1954. Mm -hmm. And um, he died in an accident. He was a pilot, and he had taken a small plane with some buddies into the Gila Wilderness in New Mexico for a long weekend of horseback riding, and checking out hot springs and 
hiking and being guys. Yes, just being out, being men in the woods. And uh, his plane went down on the trip home in a box canyon in the Gila wilderness. And so that's probably the first uh, chord that set the tone for the missing man mm-hmm. in your life. Mm-hmm. Did we go to the Gila? We went in 15, May of 15. I'm not sure where that idea came from that Christmas for those bracelets, but there was a Christmas several years prior where my mom gifted my sister and I each a bracelet that she'd made. She'd strung it together with beads that had a charm that was a penny that had been one of my granddad's lucky pennies that he kept on his keychain. And so those pennies were with him when the plane went down. So mom made these bracelets for us and gave them to us. But there was something about it that Christmas, because we had always talked about him, talked about the accident. It's not like this was new information, but there was something about the gift of the penny bracelet that just woke something up in me where I kind of went on a quest for more information about the accident. I was trying to get, you know, aviation agencies to talk to me about what their records were associated with the accident. I was talking to the Historical Society in New Mexico. I was contacting libraries. I contacted the funeral home. I was just kind of all over the place trying to unearth information. A newspaper too, didn't you? A newspaper too? Yeah, Yeah. but I don't know if those were new because we had gotten some of those from Uncle Peter too. Yeah. Anyway, I just felt like I wanted more information about what had happened. And... I don't remember where it was during that time. Did we start talking about making a trip? Oh, we did. Sure. Yeah, we did. And you're the one that absolutely instigated that idea that we should go back and visit. And you felt strongly about going back at the same time of year so that we would experience the same weather, potentially. Yeah. Same climate. What would it feel Our surroundings, like? yeah, would be similar to the place that he had been. So in all this digging, there was an outfitter that Grandad and his friends had used. They definitely used their landing strip, and I know they borrowed their horses for their camping trip. This outfitter, his name was Doc Campbell, and it turns out in my research that Doc Campbell's ranch is still there and still in Doc's family. And so we reached out to them to see if we could come visit and if they remembered the accident, if they would allow us to come. Lo and behold, Alan, one of Doc's younger sons, um, who had seen my granddad load that plane before he took off on the day that he died, is still on the ranch and agreed to let us come and said that he would try and get us to the place in the canyon where the accident had happened. So this is like, I know a ton of information, but it's just sort of setting the scene for telling the story of this trip. The purpose was to visit the place, to get as close as we could, to see what it was like. And it was a miracle that Doc Campbell's is still there. And it's a miracle 
that Alan was still there, that he, of course, remembered this accident, because I'm sure it was quite a tragedy in the community at the time, and that he was willing to entertain this pilgrimage and this visit from us. So that sets the stage. Right. That sets the stage for the trip. I, I do think... It's important to go back a little bit further, though, and frame a picture around my perspective on my dad and what it meant to me to be making this journey. You weren't all the way in the whole time. Well, I mean, I, I, I do think there was some, some fear, some... There's just a lot of emotion. Yeah. Around it, and as we all know, I'm an emotional being. <laughs> My emotions aren't hidden; they ride pretty close to the surface. But I'm also my mother's daughter, and don't like to summon them up readily. I'd rather push them aside. So it's not an easy thing for me to willingly put myself in a position that I know could potentially make me emotional. Yeah. And yeah, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. But but eventually you decided you would go. Yeah. I, I, Maybe because I was pushy. <laughs> well, yeah, that part of that. But the other piece of it is, and I think the bigger piece for sure, was um, truly wanting to have a connection. <laughs> My parents were both very adventurous and very young when they <laughs> made their way out into the world and away from their homes. My father was a 17-year-old farm boy who didn't want to farm, and as soon as he graduated from high school, he fled to California and joined the Navy. My mother, as soon as she graduated from high school, left her family farm in Nebraska, and uh, she had an aunt and uncle who lived in L.A., and they'd come to visit. And when they were ready to head home, she decided she was going to pack a bag and ride back to L.A. with them, which she did. So both my parents are living on the West Coast, uh, just kids, and both love to dance. And on weekends, dances would be held at the Hollywood Bowl and other places in the L.A. area. Ballroom Palladium. Dancing. Yeah, the Palladium. And so <clears throat> mom and dad were there and met at the Hollywood Bowl one Saturday night. And I think it was love at first sight. <laughs> anyway, they had a very brief but exciting courtship. My dad would leave base on Saturday afternoon and drive to L.A. He was stationed at Point Magoo, which was outside the L.A. area. And I wonder was, how long the drive was. I, it was long enough that he wouldn't go back. He would spend the night, yeah. He would sleep in his car. Yeah, he'd sleep in his car outside her boarding house. And shower at the YMCA so that he could take her to church on Sunday. And then he'd have to go back to base. So they were doing this on weekends, and he was in an accident, an auto accident. And I think it was, I mean, they met in the springtime or early summer, and by the end of the year... After that auto accident, they decided they were done with traveling back and forth to see each other. He was doing all the traveling, and uh, they were going to get married. <laughs> was he hurt in the accident? No, but it was just... It was just like, we're not doing this driving anymore. Right. You know, he didn't want to be in a position where he had to risk that kind of stuff anymore. So 
Anyway, they got married very young. They were together only a couple of years after being married. They had, early on, twin boys. Only one survived. So that was a heartbreaking loss for them. And then a year later, I was born. And when I was a year old, then my father died in that plane accident. So I wanted to put that history there so that there's an understanding of this brief, but very, I think, passionate, romantic love affair. And this is what my mother experienced and, of course, what she remembered and what she shared with me around him. So here's this prince from Hollywood. Yeah, he's so handsome. Yeah, and, and all the stories about him were lovely. Such a good man. And he wrote home to my grandmother, his mother, almost every day that he was in the Navy. And I have his hundreds of letters in a box. So that in and of itself is a huge gift and extremely rare. A man would take the time to do that, but this boy did that for his mother. Um, One shows what a family man he was. Yeah. Yeah, how much he How loved. dedicated. Absolutely. And my mom talked about how much children loved him and ran to him. And, and you know, he loved to dance and he had a motorcycle. And who's not going to love this guy, you know? I, I'm just trying to paint for you the picture that I had of this man that I never got to know. No conscious memories of him. Yeah, no tangible, tangible experience around that. So... Anyway, this trip to the Gila was an opportunity to connect. The most magical piece of it was connect with Alan Campbell, who had actually seen my dad and remembered remembered him. Yeah. And to be in a place where my dad had been, a place that he had loved. They'd been there more than once. And in an experience that was exciting to him because he was a very young, new pilot. So I'm sure that was thrilling for him to be the guy behind the wheel of the plane. and So I was seeking that that connection for sure. And that's ultimately what made you agree to go. Absolutely, yeah. So we had just a really short weekend. I mean, I think it was all in all a three-day trip. Oh, it was, yeah. Whirlwind. We flew in, drove to Silver City, spent the night in Silver City, met Alan, spent that day exploring. Drove back to yeah, Phoenix. Drove back to Phoenix. Yeah, I mean, it just went really, really quickly. It yeah. all happened really fast. Yeah, it yeah, was amazing. It was a quick trip. A lot packed into it. So we had a good time in Silver City, and it was kind of meaningful being there, to me anyway. I felt like, I felt like we were so close to something so big in our family because... That's where the mortuary was that handled the remains from the accident. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember even being in town, you know, just looking around and thinking about the people who worked there and lived there during that time. And what did they know? You know, had they heard anything? Then, of course, the people who worked at that mortuary obviously would have been intimately involved and had more information. But it was just interesting to me to be walking the streets and be thinking about 
someone who lives in Silver City that has this connection to our family. And I just felt like we were really close. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was definitely an anticipation there. So we stayed at a really cute little motel. The Murray Hotel. In, in Silver City. Mm-hmm. I guess motel is not the right word. It wasn't. No, it was hotel. a little hotel. Yeah, it was really cute. Real kind of art deco. Retro. Yeah, really a cute place. Yeah, so quaint. We went out for Mexican food. Mm-hmm. That was really fun. And saw some really cool cowboys in there having dinner with their families. Yeah, that was so much fun. It's a very small town, and the people are just... I mean, there's nothing pretentious or... Just ranching families, and yeah, it was cool. But on the day of the visit, on the day of our rendezvous with Alan Campbell, we woke up, and it was raining. Not hard, but it was raining, and the skies were gray. And I remember Jen and I both looked at each other and were like, really, today? The day before had been beautiful, and we're going off trekking into the wilderness, and it's going to be raining and muddy, and oh my gosh. But we got in the car and started our trek. We ended up stopping for breakfast because we we had about a two-hour drive, I think. Hour and a half, something like that. Yeah, it was definitely not nothing. It wasn't like 30 minutes up the road. No. We had meaningful time in the car to get there. We had 90 and miles the, or something. I and think. the road, I remember, you know, just very windy, very slow going. Yeah. It was not like an easy highway. Right. We're back in National Wilderness Area, and it's, you know, it's certainly not mountainous, not like the Rockies are mountainous, but it was hilly and climbing and... Windy. Yeah. Real windy. Yeah, and tall trees and big boulders, and yeah, you definitely felt like you were out there in the middle of it. But we went to breakfast, we're sitting in the restaurant, and the rain turned to snow. Like, fat. They were like... The snowflakes were as big as 50 cent pieces. <laughs> and it was coming down. It was falling. There were just blankets of it falling everywhere. And once again, we're looking at each other and thinking, oh, come on. Well, I kind of was afraid we were going to have to cancel. Right. I mean, I really. Because we only had this one day. Yeah. This one day we, we had to make this happen. But I didn't know if we were going to be able to pass the roads. With the way that the snow was falling. To me, it you know, we live in Colorado. We're used to driving in snow. So it's not like a little snowstorm would have deterred us, you know. It felt like blizzard conditions. <laughs> well, it was. Yeah, it wasn't a small little storm. Yeah, it didn't. It seemed like a risky thing. But we made a quick call to Alan Campbell and asked him what the weather was like where he was. And he said it wasn't even snowing. The little rain shower had passed through, but he said there's nothing going on over here now. Yeah, so it's fine. Just come on. Just keep on coming. So we kept driving, and the snow kept falling, and the roads kept getting yeah. were getting snow packed, and the snow started to pile up on the side of the road, and the <laughs> trees are blanketed, and you know the deer are running around <laughs> trying to find shelter. Yeah, I mean it was it was not a small thing. It was it, legit. Yeah. But onward we went, and truly, it was like the eighth wonder of the world when we got to... On that ridge. Yeah, because we we climbed to a mountain ridge, and it was seriously, God had drawn a line across the top of the mountain, and on one side, it was snow, and on the other side, it was like... Spring. (laughs) 
grass growing and flowers blooming, birds chirping. Almost fake. Seriously. I mean, it, it... it almost felt like, are we hallucinating? Like, this is crazy. Yeah, it was like like the Wizard of Oz yeah. in the Emerald City. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was crazy. Totally bizarre. But it was so cool because, of course, we felt this tremendous relief. Down the hill we went, made a right turn into Alan Campbell's ranch. There was a big sign out front. And Carla Campbell was out there to greet us in her boots and her cowboy hat. Carla was Alan's wife. There were horses and goats and sheep and a mule and... Beautiful land. Yeah. They have a... Part of what they do is cater to hot springs because they have lots of natural springs on the property. And so, you know, it's just a beautiful wooded area and lots of rocks and very cool places where there's natural springs. You know, it's not like... Um, going to, I don't know, anybody who's like familiar with Glenwood Springs in Colorado where these pools have been built out. It's Yeah, these are just natural. natural. You're sitting on the edge of the river in a hot spring. And this is the Gila River that flows through here, and I believe there are ranches on the west fork of the Gila River. But yeah, hot springs all up and down that stretch of the river. But Carla told us that Alan had gone back to the house. I mean, we're just out on there in their lane or whatever, but she said he'd walk back up to the house to get some cough medicine because he had a really bad cold. And that made me feel bad because he wasn't a young man. I forgot about that. Yeah, remember that? I think he probably would not have been out in the world the same way if it wasn't our day. Exactly. He probably would have been home resting. Mm -hmm. God bless that guy for pushing through because we were there. Yeah, because he totally did make himself completely available to us and put himself out. And I know he wasn't feeling well. Well, and I don't remember how sure were we that we were going to be able to get to the site. I don't think we knew until we were on the property. I mean, I don't remember Alan saying, I don't know if we'll be able to get back there. Oh, I do. You do? Yes. I had explicit conversations with him because he had to talk to the people at... I thought you were talking about the weather determined. No, 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 no. Yeah, you're talking about the people, the yes. other ranchers. Yes. Yeah. And so when we arrived at Doc Campbell's, I don't know, I can't remember how certain we were of like what is even going to happen today. I don't think we knew exactly what we were going to be able to do. Well, and the other thing that's interesting to mention is we had arrived in Silver City the afternoon before. And we had been walking up and down their little main street and just kind of checking out, you know, a cafe and a shop. And there wasn't a whole lot going on there. But we did pop into this one shop and there was like glass blowing or Uh yeah, pottery and stuff like that for sale. And we met a man in there named Ari. And he was one of the owners, one of the ranch owners on whose land. On XSX? Yeah. Uh, his I ranch land. I didn't we, remember that. We had to cross his land to get where we were going from Alan's ranch. And as Alan Campbell explained to us once we connected with him, he said that there was a lot of new blood there in that area. You know, younger potheads. and mm-hmm. I mean, this was Alan's description of it. Yeah, um, the, the the ranching families who had been up in that area and had been taking care of each other for such a long time. 
were starting to move it on. Had dwindled. Yeah. And and the new blood was. Yeah, the nouveau riche were coming in, <laughs> making life awkward for the people that that had lived there for years and years. Uh, I wish I could remember Ari's last name. Like, I can't remember either. I probably have it. Well, let's look. Oh, gosh. It's, there's a part of me that feels like we should read this as it is. Because listen to this. What? Alan Dawson Campbell, son of Dawson Doc Campbell, mm-hmm. son of Angus, Scottish cattle baron and lord of Acres <laughs> Ranch land adjacent to the National Gila Wilderness. I mean, it's just like so cool. East Fork. Okay. So the ranch was on the East Fork of the Gila? When my father accelerated his small plane into thin, hot air and turned into the canyon of the East Fork of the Gila River. Ari Werber. Werber. That's right. (laughs) Currently owned by Ari Werber, a glass-blowing, red-eyed toker. (laughs) We'd serendipitously met in Silver City the day prior. This land had been purchased in the 70s by Ari's father, Frank. Frank was also a colorful character who relocated to the Gila from California after a divorce in search of an escape from the rat race. It was intriguing to hear that Frank came from living as a boy in a concentration camp to a life in America as a manager for the Kingston Trio. All of this means that we needed not only Ari's blessing to trespass onto his property, but a combination to a second gate. Unwilling to give the combination to Alan, Ari arranged for his caretaker, Jeremiah, to meet us and open the gate. Remember that? Yes. Ari Werber. Totally forgot that he owned XSX. XSX Ranch. Anyway, I don't even know what I was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) That we'd met Ari in town, I think. And, and, yeah, that there were other ranches that we needed to cross, and... Uh, we needed to get permission from those owners. And it, and it was a big deal because clearly just from that little excerpt, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of trust between neighboring ranch owners. Mm-hmm. And so when we originally made the request, Alan was like, I don't know if I'll be able to get you back there because I don't know if we can even pass through this ranch. They might say no. Exactly. And then when they said, sure, you can, the next barrier was, well, we're kind of at the whim of if Jeremiah, the caretaker, even shows up because we're not giving you the code. So you're not on your own. You know, you you have to kind of depend on all the chips falling into place perfectly. Right. I'm trying to find the name of that other rancher. Jack Hooker. Yeah. What was the name of his ranch? Oh, he had XSX at the time. He was XSX owner. Owner at the time the plane went down. Right. Yeah. Right. So we're trying to to lay this out that we climb into Alan's pickup and start four-wheeling it down this road and eventually come to a gate and it's unlocked and we can open it and cross through and continue on. And then we get to another gate that's locked. And that's where Jeremiah showed up. And really a nice young man. Yeah, he was. And he was washing diapers. Do you remember that? Yeah. He was washing diapers outside. I mean, this is a remote area and not everybody's got all the conveniences. So he was talking about how nice it would be to finally have running water and they could get a washing machine so they could wash diapers in a washing machine instead of doing it by hand. They had a new baby. Oh, my gosh. 
But anyway, he was really a nice young man, so he gave us access onto that ranch property. And as we drove along, Alan talked about the previous owner, whose name was Jack Hooker, and Jack had owned that ranch land when my father was there. And he said that on the day of the crash, Jack had been out working in his field, and my father's plane flew over, and he knew at the time that it was too low. And he anticipated a problem and got in his truck and followed them for a ways as far as he could. But this is just, you know, again, he's four-wheeling it, too. I don't know if there was even a, any kind of a road carved at that point in time. I don't feel like there because we were not really on a road It was just a really, time. yeah, it was just a really It was like a trail at path. best. Yeah. And we kept crossing the river. Right. I mean, the river winds so much, it was like not just one crossing and and it was several feet deep i mean i was afraid the truck was gonna float <laughs> yeah yeah it's not a, it's not a big river for sure but it was very exciting to drive through it it really was exciting is not the word that i would choose i mean i was scared yeah no it was fun it was really fun but he said jack followed him for a ways and he never heard an explosion or a crash or anything so eventually he just he assumed they around. made it yeah he turned around and went back to doing what he was doing but at any rate so we're with alan and continuing on and we finally get to a point where he parked the truck and said okay we're gonna need to walk from here and so we piled out of his truck and Mind you now, it is, it's still a beautiful day. I mean, the sun is shining, and it's quiet. The, you can hear the river and the birds and flowers, spring flowers are blooming. and It was really a, a beautiful place. We had to cross a patch of peppermint. We had to cross the river by foot. And that was fun because we just, do you remember, we just went for it. Yeah. I mean, there was no, like, roll your jeans up, take your shoes off. We just... Plowed on in. <laughs> just went on in. Because that's what Alan did. Yeah. yeah. And we it's not like we were wearing galoshes. Right. And we crossed on the other side. He looked around and just said, this is the place. It's significant that we had to cross a patch of peppermint to get to the site. Because one of our little nicknames for our grandmother is Peppermint Patty. Because her name was Patricia. So... I remember feeling like it was um, a signal, you know, and something uh, sweet and connected. Her way there at was us, this know. patch of peppermint that we had to go through to get to the site. I remember thinking, though, when Alan said this is the place. At first, I was like, "Well, how do you? How can you be so sure after all these years?" And yes, yeah, skeptical. Yeah, you were just a little boy. But as he explained to us later, and as we learned from his wife, he has a photographic memory. And there are landmarks, stones, rocks. Yeah. This is a box canyon. So there are canyon walls there. And even from the photographs of the crash site afterward, you know, you could look at the... Not that I ever have, but as Alan said, he, he looked at those photographs. He remembered the spot very clearly. And I think it was probably a traumatic experience for him, too. So he probably did have rather vivid memories because these ranchers were the first on the scene. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they said there was a search party and they just organized just some of the local guys to go out there and to go look when go find it when they didn't show up where right. they were supposed to be. So there were three guys on the trip and uh, only two of them had come back to the ranch. 
for the last load of camping gear. And so when those two didn't make it to the third... Yeah, they were supposed to be in Las Cruces. So my dad and his buddy had taken a bunch of their gear. I mean, they had a ton of gear. And that was one of the problems, that the plane was so laden with all of their stuff. My but dad, they couldn't even make it in one trip. Right. So my dad had flown out earlier in the day and carried a load of their gear to Las Cruces. And there was a third guy who was in a truck and hauling gear as well. So he was supposed to meet, meet up with them in Las Cruces after that second flight when they hauled out the last of the gear. And when they didn't make it, and that's when they sent out that search party. But getting back to Alan and his certainty of the site, being a person who you know works with kids who experience trauma, there often are very vivid memories associated with the trauma because it's so intense that it's just seared into your mind. Yeah, which makes sense. And so the fact that he had a photographic memory and he was such a young boy when this happened and was with the search party and saw the crash, saw the guys in there. I mean, I remember him, you know, giving descriptions about what he saw at the site. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that wasn't easy. Right. And what, he was like t 11 or 12 years old, I think, at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was still a pretty young kid. It's surprising that his dad even let him go back in there, actually. Well, a different time. Yeah. And certainly as ranchers. Yeah, they see... It's a different... Yeah, it's a different It's a different perspective in a different world. I remember what has stayed with me from being in that place was just the opportunity to be quiet there. You know, my dad's plane didn't explode or burst into flames or anything like that. And so once the plane settled and the occupants had passed... It would have been as we heard it. I thought that too. The rushing of the river and the wind in the trees. and I thought that exact thing. And in my mind's eye, I can hear it and mm -hmm. see it and feel it. It was something I very intentionally like, stood there and kind of did a 360 and was just thinking about after the plane had come to rest, mm -hmm. this is what it would have been. When his spirit went to the angels... This is what was happening in the world. This is what the world sounded like. Right. And there was an eerie peace to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's not like we started, like, sobbing or tearing our clothes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think... Which was there, beautiful about it. There was some worry, too, that it would be really emotional and that we, you know, would be beside ourselves. Thank goodness for Alan, we were not like that. I just think there was a real peace that came from being there. It wasn't dark. It wasn't upsetting. It was, there was closure. There was reassurance. There was... It was beautiful. It was, yeah. It's a beautiful place. It is a beautiful place, but it did feel like holy in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember it's not like we were yelling at each other across the river or hollering, you know, I mean we were speaking in in more hushed tones. I mean there was a reverence to being there. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it did. It felt like being in a church mm -hmm. or something. Well and you know, something that I skipped over but a moment that really impacted me in that 
whole journey as well was early on before we even started down the road back into the canyon. Alan had taken us across the road from his ranch and up this kind of little plateau, which is where the runway had been. The landing strip. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so breathtaking for me to stand at the end of that runway and look out over the river and the canyon and just the landscape and know that that is the view that my dad had right before he went, you know? I mean, that's what he saw. That's where he was. That's That was his sky. I felt the same way about after the time with Alan back up in the canyon. We came back to the ranch, and their church was meeting on the property. So cool. And they ended up offering us lunch, which was so sweet. And so we had egg salad sandwiches. And jello. And jello. Strawberry pretzel jello. <laughs> Strawberry jello with pretzels and a little bit of Cool Whip. So, <laughs> so good. It was amazing. It was so good. such a great meal. But um, I remember Carla taking us down onto the property, like close to the springs and giving us more information about the land and the terrain and all of that kind of stuff. It was about how they piped the water from the hot springs across to the ranch. Uh Uh-huh. It was so cool. And I think Alan had gone to rest by that point. So we were just with Carla, Mm -hmm. but I remember having that experience when I put my feet in the hot springs and just, I don't know. It was like, I know in my logical mind that it was not the same molecules of water. Right. But there was something, you know, in my soul that just feels like it's all on a loop. And so the same water that I had my feet in is the same water. That he had his feet in. That he had his feet in. And yeah. it felt like such a, I don't, it's like there's not a word big enough for it because a connection or, yeah, connection's not the right word. It's not big enough. But it felt like being with him in a way. Right. Yeah. There is something so precious and so rare about, under these kinds of circumstances, being able to put yourself in a place that you feel joins you with that other human being. Who you can't touch or feel or talk to or experience in the flesh. Right. I loved how we joined their little church service, which is a dozen people. I I mean, it was a little group. It was a small group. They met on the fourth Sunday of every month in what had been Alan's mother's home. She passed away, but they used that building as their church church building on the fourth Sunday of every month when a traveling pastor would come in and do church for him. And that's the Sunday that we happened to be there and get to have. Their church service was over with, as Jen said, but... That we got to sit and have lunch with them after, which is what they commonly did. And yeah, that was, they were just such warm people. It was, it was like the height of hospitality to feel like it was okay for us to join their service because they're such an intimate community. And they knew why we were there. Oh, and they knew why we were there. They wanted to talk about it. So, but welcoming us into that and then sharing their lunch. It was a very gentle way to bring something so charged to a close. Yeah. So when we said goodbye to them, 
we climbed back in our rental car and drove up to the little store that they have since opened on their property. And they had some gift items in there and some camping necessities and things like Snacks. that. <laughs> what was fun about it was the proprietress was Isabel. Isabel Campbell, and she was Alan's sister, older sister, and she would have been around during this time, but she was much less forthcoming, much cooler. Yeah, she was not as welcoming to us as Alan was. Not at all. She wasn't interested in having any kind of real interaction with us. And there was one other sister that had survived as well. Her name was Becky, but she was apparently out on a pack trip. With a group of people, so we never did get to meet her. But they, those girls were both older than Alan, so it would have been fun to pick their brains because perhaps they would have remembered something else. Man, I remember just making those calls to those women. Now I'm rewinding all the way back to, you know, when we were in the search. Right. But I remember leaving voicemails for them <laughs> on their answering machines and just being so... At least they called back. At least they did. You know, they weren't so warm to us, but they called back and got got us connected with Alan. Yeah. And that was really where the wealth of information was, because the girls weren't in the search party. Right. The only way they would have been able to tell us where the site was is if Alan had told them or if their dad had told them. And they probably still would have been kind of vague around it or something. Right. Anyway. Yeah, it was so valuable that he was he was there. And available. So we piled back in the car and went to the Gila Cliff Dwellings, which was another significant part of our journey because we have a lot of photographs that are very distinctive. Because the cliff dwellings are so distinctive, the photographs we have of Grandad at the cliff dwelling translate really easily for us because we can see that exact same thing whereas the pictures of them in the woods who knows where they are who knows where they are in right. the woods right who knows where the, at what point in the river they're sitting in that hot spring and so the cliff dwellings were sort of a special place to visit because we could just be so exact they had rented some pack horses from the Campbells though for that weekend of camping and so forth so they'd probably ridden their horses over to the cliff dwellings. I'm trying to remember, maybe, I don't know, five miles away from the ranch or something. It wasn't far. It wasn't very far. And it's very similar to Mesa Verde, but on a much smaller scale. It's those types of cliff dwellings. So there was a long path to walk back in there. But once we got there, it was a fairly small community but what was cool is we ran into a park ranger named Barbara. She was so lovely. She was really nice. And we told her why we were there. And I have one photograph in particular of my dad standing, gazing out at the horizon in front of a particular cliff dwelling. And we told Barbara that we were looking for that particular spot. And she looked at it and said, oh, I know exactly where that is. And took us, took us right over there. And the Park Service, since the days that my dad was there, has built some stairs that weren't originally part of this dwelling, but they did it to make it safer for the visitors. So that was one aspect that had changed. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, you could stand back and look at it, and it was exactly as it was. 
So Jen and I had decided that it would be really fun to recreate the photograph, and I would be standing, <laughs> gaze out at the horizon just as my dad had. And while this entire experience had been very profound for me in feeling like I was at last sitting in the company of my father. It was this moment in particular where I honestly felt as I was posing in front of that cliff dwelling in the same spot where he had stood, uh, I, I felt him there standing behind me. And I remember that sensation very clearly. And I will always believe that he was right there with me in that moment. Yeah, I felt that the cliff dwellings were impactful for the same reason. But I think it was probably a tiny bit different for me than it was for you because of the photograph that we were doing that moment that you described. But I remember exploring and just being near the dwellings and feeling like the veil between where we are right now and where he is, is so thin. And it's like, if I could just find the right spot, if I could, it's like, it. I don't know of another word other than portal, you know? It's like, right. if, if like, is there some space in the air where if I just touch it the if, right way. If I rub the stone. I could reach through. through. Yeah. And I mean, it really did feel like we were he, so was, close. he was yeah. there and so, so close. And if I could just find the right spot in the veil, I would be able to touch him. Yeah, that was really magnificent, that moment. I felt his presence more at the cliff dwellings than I did at the site. Oh, absolutely. You um, felt yes. the same way? Yeah, I didn't experience that, that sensation throughout the rest of that day until we reached the cliff dwellings. And I kind of like that. I'm so grateful for this trip and I'm so glad that we went to the site because I do feel that was a sacred, holy experience. And I, I'm really, really grateful that I, that I got to put my feet on that ground. Me too, Jen. But I'm glad that where I felt his presence was where he was living, not where he died. Right, right. And I think that phrase, that statement in and of itself is a great way to sum up the whole experience, is that it was an experience of where he was living mm -hmm. more than where he died. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even though the quest originally was to see the spot where he left, that's not what I came away with when that trip finally drew to a close, you know? So, gosh, after this time at the dwellings, we climbed back in the car, and we had a long drive back to Phoenix where we stayed in a really gross hotel. It's disgusting. <laughs> it smelled so bad. It was disgusting. But what I remember about that drive was the highway and how much highway there was in front of us. That's what's beautiful about that part of the United States. It's just the desert and it's just wide open. And the sunset. Mm -hmm. 
and how much fun we had singing song because we really had the music going. Yeah. It was that dark desert highway. Yeah. Cool wind in our hair. Uh-huh. Warm smell of colitas <laughs> rising, rising up through, through the air. air. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting because, I mean, we did listen to that song loud and on repeat a few times, and it's interesting how an experience like the one we had in the Gila can make those lyrics that you've known so well kind of come alive in a different way, you know? Up ahead in the distance, I saw a shimmering light. Right. My head grew heavy and my sight grew dim. <laughs> Ugh, I had to stop for the, the night. night. <laughs> I don't know. There's just something really in there. So if you were going to punctuate this trip uh, to the Gila, this pilgrimage that we took, and sort of sum it up for people with, you know, all I know after taking this trip is. Wow. All I know is they're not gone. They're here. If you're just willing to sit down and have a chat. Thank you for being willing to tell this story. You're welcome. I think your all I know is that they're here. I think that's exactly why that sentiment is really why I wanted us to be able to tell this story and share it on the show. Because I think... Losing someone is so hard. And I don't think in our humanity it's ever going to be easy or okay. And I don't think it's meant to be. But, man, maybe the amount of despair could be lessened by a degree or two if we believe and are comforted by knowing that you're still here. It's just different. Yeah. I agree. It reminds me of that poem that we kind of fell in love with, or that passage maybe is a better way to say it, after Grandma died about, you know, you don't have to talk about me in hushed tones. You you don't have to, you know, mourn me. I'm still, I'm just around the corner. I'm still Yeah, you're right. That fits. Yeah. Okay, so let's do the best we can to close with the Pivo questionnaire. Okay. What's your favorite word? Lanyap. What's lanyap? French <laughs> something? It means a little something extra. Oh, that's sweet. Mm-hmm. What's your least favorite word? Liar. Pants on fire. <laughs> what turns you on? An airplane ticket. <laughs> what turns you off? A trip getting canceled. <laughs> What's your favorite curse word? The F-bomb. Yeah. I know. It's kind of in the family. It's too bad. but I know. Yeah, what are you going to do? Well, Granddad was a sailor. He was, and I tell everybody that. My father was a sailor, so don't look at me from my mouth. Of course, he probably never cursed it in his life because he's so good. Never once. No. He would have gotten his rosary out and thrown it at me. (laughs) What sound or noise do you love? The sound of my grandchildren laughing. What sound or noise do you hate? My dog whining at me for another treat. 
Really? You hate it? No. No, I don't hate it. I mean, I can imagine it being unpleasant, but hate? <laughs> no. No, I don't hate it. Okay. What sound do I hate? Ooh, the sound of an automobile accident. Oh. I know. I don't know why I thought of that, but you told me to look for something that I hated. That's what came to mind. Um, especially being retired, this should be interesting. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? I still would love to be a rock star, you know? Yeah. I'd, li- I'd like to... <laughs> I'm sorry. I just was remembering us having this conversation when we talked about the farm mm-hmm. and you said rock star. And I think I was teasing you about being Britney Spears or something. And, right. you, and you said no, more like Stevie, Stevie Nicks. Nicks. Yeah. But it still made me laugh. Yeah. Annie Lennox, you know, somebody like that. Somebody cool. Yeah. Somebody cool. Not that you're not cool, Britney. <laughs> we think you're cool too. <laughs> cool. Cool in a seasoned way. Cool. You, you had your time. You know? And I'm not part of your time. That's the only thing. What profession would you definitely not like to attempt? Politician. I don't get anything about it. I don't get it. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you pass through the pearly gates? Your dad's waiting for you right over there. Thanks, Mom. You're welcome. I want to thank you for listening in today. When our guests agree to be vulnerable with us and to share from the well of their life experience, one of the best ways that we can acknowledge that kind of courage is to communicate that what has been shared has fallen on ready ears and a heart that is open. So if there was something that struck a chord today, Please interact with the posts on social media that are related to this episode so that you can let that storyteller know about the impact that he or she had on you. If you haven't connected with us already on one of these platforms, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram under the handle All I Know Podcast. Please remember that the ideas, opinions, and views shared today belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find fuel for working with in their own lives from every episode, it should be noted that this podcast is not a therapeutic intervention and it's not a substitute for advice or counsel from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, which is a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado, and our team works primarily with children and their families that have been impacted by developmental or early childhood trauma, and we specialize in adoption and foster care issues. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me, with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you're interested in developing a relationship as a sponsor for this project, or if you're interested in being a guest and one of our storytellers on All I Know, you can reach us at know at inwardboundco.com. I'm going to give that to you one more time. All I know at I-N-W-A-R-D-B-O-U-N-D-C-O.com. And you'll never miss an episode if you visit the website so that you can subscribe or follow the show through your preferred streaming platform. And the way to find us on the web is to go to allIKnow.podient.co. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can.